this morning, uh, I just couldn't face the ham and eggs. <laughs> and now we're, we've got to a point where I don't know whether I'm finishing up Brother Calvin's lessons, whether Ernie's going to speak for me tomorrow, or, you know, I just have no idea where I'm at at all. <laughs> The only thing that I'm sure of is that I have a nice cool glass of water here. <laughs> this morning, uh, for a short time, I think it would be nice to, if we turn to the 20, 20th chapter of Matthew, because I'd like to speak for shortly on the parable of the labors in the vineyard. And we'll read this account. It runs from the first verse to the sixteenth inclusive. For it says there that the kingdom of heaven is like unto a man that is an householder, which went out early in the morning to hire laborers into his vineyard. And when he had agreed with the laborers for a penny a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said unto them, Go ye also into the vineyard, and whatsoever is right I will give you. And they went their way. Again he went out about the sixth and ninth hour, and did likewise. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing idle and said unto them, Why stand ye here all the day idle? And they say unto him, Because no man hath hired us. And he said unto them, Go ye also into the vineyard. And he said, Whatsoever is right that shall ye receive. So when even was come, the Lord of the vineyard said unto his stewards, Call the laborers, and give to them their hire, beginning from the last unto the first. And when they came, that were hired about the eleventh hour, they received every man a penny. Now these are those that went in at the very last hour, in the eleventh hour of the day. And when they had received it, they murmured against the good man of the house, saying, 
These last have wrought but one hour, and thou hast made them equal unto us. Thou hast made them equal unto we who have borne the burden of, and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them and said, Friend, I do thee no wrong. Didst not thou agree with me for a penny? Take that thine is and go thy way. I will give unto, uh, I will give unto this last even as unto thee. Is it not lawful for me to do what I will with mine own? Is thine eye evil because I am good? So the last shall be first, and the first last. For many be called, but few chosen. Now, in connection with this parable, Jesus had declared that the salvation of the rich would be a very difficult thing. Peter drew attention to the fact that the disciples were not rich, but that they were very poor. And that this poverty was in a large measure, it was voluntary on their part, upon which he invited Jesus to state to them the great advantages of their sacrifice. Now in this, there was a mixture of childlike simplicity with perhaps maybe just a trace of complacency verging perhaps on vain glory. This then accounts for the double nature of Christ's answer which deal with both aspects of Peter's attitude. First, Jesus deals with the sincere aspect. He tells the disciples, frankly, that the counterpart of their fellowship with him on the day of his contempt would be of a partition in his power and glory when he should sit upon the throne in the day of restitution. And he further says that everyone who had sacrificed for his sake would be recompensed a hundredfold.
And he promised that they would have, or that they would inherit everlasting life. But then he adds a statement that suggests qualification when he said, but many that are first shall be last and the last first. The merely giving up of worldly advantage for his sake would not ensue final acceptance with God unless the act was performed and accompanied with an acceptable spirit, a spirit of modesty and a spirit of self-denial. And then there's the words where it says for. And he then proceeds to employ a parable which can only be rightly understood in view of these circumstances. Many that are first shall be last. And the last shall be first. For the kingdom of heaven is like unto a man that is a, as a householder, which went out early in the morning to hire laborers into his vineyard. And with these words, Jesus then spake the parable that we have read this morning. He then spoke the parable of the laborers. It is a parable of hired laborers. And Christ said that the owner of a vineyard goes out early in the morning. And he employs all that accept service for one penny a day. And we read that about nine o'clock, he goes out again and finds other hands loitering and, un and unemployed in the marketplace. He sends them to his vineyard with the general assurance that he will make their wages right. He did the same at 12 o'clock. He did the same again at 3 o'clock. And again at 5 o'clock, the 11th hour, when the day is nearly done. He pays another visit to the marketplace and finds another batch of men idle there at that time. And he sends them also into his vineyard for to work. And we read there this morning that at the close of the day, the whole of the laborers, all of them, 
were gathered for payment of their wages. And payment began with those who had come last. And so if a payment went to those that came last, that means that the early comers were standing there looking on. And they imagined that as they had worked all day, that they would get more. That they would receive a larger payment than those who had worked only a portion of the day. Although the contract, was it not just for a penny? The contract was for one day's pay. And when their turn came, they received what they had agreed upon. But because the others had received the same amount for lesser hours spent in the vineyard, they grumbled. And hearing their grumbling, the owner of the vineyard reasoned with one of them on behalf of the rest. And he said, friend, I do thee no wrong. Didst thou not agree with me for a penny? Is it not lawful for me to do what I will with mine own? It is customary, brethren and sisters, to understand this parable as teaching that everyone of the accepted, everyone will be alike in their status in glory. That those who have just believed and taken on themselves the name of Christ and then passed away without the opportunity of faithfulness or a faithful stewardship will rank equally with those who through long years of trial, tribulation, ecclesial problems, you name them, have borne the burden and the heat of the day. Now another favorite idea of some is that it teaches that everyone who believes will be saved without reference to their walk without reference to their conduct 
or without reference to their conversation during this time of their pilgrimage. Those who take this view speak of the penny of eternal life. They suppose that the penny is is to teach that everyone called to the vineyard will receive eternal life. And that the difference between acceptable and unacceptable laboring will be in the position assigned to them in the, in the state to which eternal life will introduce them. Brethren and sisters and friends, there are reasons for rejecting both of these views. The first reason lies in the, in the interpretation which Jesus himself gives of the general drift here of this parable. And he concludes this parable with this remark, does he not? So the last shall be first and the first shall be last. For many are called, but few are chosen. As the laborers represent the called, This makes it certain that they are not intended to stand indiscriminately for the saved. They've just been called. They stand for the called. Not for the chosen. even though they may include the chosen. The parable is employed expressly to teach that it is not everyone casually employed that is selected as a permanent servant by the owner of the vineyard. And this reason is of itself decisive. And there are others. It is not fitting that any class of the, of the saved should be re represented by those who murmur against the good man of the house. Or as we read there, or as we have read this morning, of those who have, have what might be called an evil eye. 
The idea that all are to be equal would conflict with the plainly enunciated doctrine of the New Testament that the standing of of men with Christ in the day of account will be determined by the account that they have rendered. All laborers are not the same. Some work much harder than others. This doctrine is rejected by the Christianity of the day where we now live, as a great many other true doctrines of ours are rejected. It has been nullified by the misapplication of that true doctrine that salvation is by grace. Not of works. Our salvation is by the grace of God. Lest any man should boast. There is no conflict, therefore, between these doctrines. When it is seen that the doctrine of salvation by grace applies to the foundation and the initiation of the plan. Brethren and sisters, if salvation primarily depended on works, no man could be saved. For all have sinned, and the wages of sin is death. Just one sin is enough to ensure death, as is shown in the case of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. That was enough to ensure death. One sin. Salvation to be possible at all for any of us has to be by grace and by favor. And this salvation to be possible or this favor or this grace that we have been speaking of takes on the form of the forgiveness of sins by which a man becomes justified in the sight of Almighty God. And an heir of life eternal. 
But forgiveness is on conditions. The preaching of the gospel is a proclamation of those conditions. The conditions not only determine the question of forgiveness or the question of no forgiveness, but they also affect the question of how high in glory those who are forgiven will rise. For there are degrees of attainment in Christ, as we spoke of in the parable yesterday. And it is here where the elements of account come in. It is here where works will determine a man or woman's position at the judgment seat of Christ. The man or the woman who in this connection exclaims not of works does not rightly divide the word of truth. But rather, if they do say that, they rest it to his, his or her own destruction. Nothing is more plainly, nothing is more frequently indicated that the called will be judged with reference to their respective works and that their position will depend upon their account. Let us look at a few of these examples. And I'll, I'll not look them up, but I'll just quote them quickly for you. Revelation 22 and 12 says, Behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me, to give every man according as his work shall be. Matthew 26, 27 says, the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his, own day, with his holy angels, and then shall he award every man according to his works. 1 Corinthians 3.8 says, Every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. Second Corinthians 9, 6 says, He that soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly, and he that soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. Luke 19, 17 says, Have thou authority over ten cities? 
and be thou ruler over five cities. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. And so we say, what then is the teaching of the parable? That not everyone that labors in the vineyard will receive the Lord's favor at the time of judgment. That not even the forsaking of a houses for the saking of lands, for the forsaking of riches, for the forsaking of relatives, or the bearing of the burden and the heat of the day, even that, brethren and sisters, is not sufficient. And it will commend to God a man who is a murmurer, or who has an evil eye, or he who is great in his own eyes. That it is a necessity that a man recognize the absolute sovereignty of the Lord of the vineyard. Both as to possession And also, the right to do as he wills. Uncontrolled by any will on our part. Uncontrolled by any wish. Uncontrolled by any whim of our imagination on the part of those whom he favors with employment. In a word that, except a man humble himself. Except we humble ourselves, as a little child, shall no case enter into the kingdom. Of our Lord. The paying of the penny is a mere part of the drapery of this parable. The paying of the penny is a mere part of the drapery of this parable. But if a specific counterpart to it is insisted upon, then it is found in the fact that the Lord is just. It is found in the fact that the Lord will give all that the holders of the covenant can justly claim to receive. And what is that? 
a mere resurrection. Everything beyond this is favor and grace. And the Lord bestows this of his own bounty. And only where men and women find favor and grace in his eyes. And the concluding words of Jesus, many are called, but few chosen. Establish that the parable is a portrayal of God's work. God is still, brethren and sisters, God is doing the choosing. And the action and the spirit of the good man is designed to show God's spirit and his aims. The good man was uncommercial. He was generous to, to some without being unjust to others. His actions at the end of the day, in the payment of what he agreed he would pay, were not that of men generally, were they? Well, neither are divine actions like those of men. The good man also asserted his absolute right. He could do as he willed with his own. And laborers did not prescribe the limits of what he could do or what he could not do. So too God is sovereign. And God will give, as he wills with his own. Paying to bargainers as had been agreed, generous to those who labor in trust of getting what is right. These will all come under God's determination, not ours.
The first last are the Jewish legalists, the men of the present world. And the last first are the children of faith and are the children of the kingdom and heirs of the age to come. And so the last will be first, for the future is theirs. For Jesus did not say, so the last are first, but rather he said, shall be first. It is the Gentile that comes in at the eleventh hour, is it not? And so the man who received payment and grumbled, we read, had, had an evil eye toward the good man. He was told to take that thine is and to go thy way. And he was dismissed from further service and has no place in the future. The chosen will be choice because God will be choosing them. He will be choosing them on the account of their excellence, for they are judged not by our standards, but they will be judged by his standards. In Matthew 23, 1-12, we have a, a short parable regarding the Pharisee and the publican. And I'll just close off this part of our lesson with this a few thoughts from this parable. We read that though men ought always to pray and not to faint, there are qualifications to be observed. We are not to suppose they will be heard for their much speaking, as we are told in Matthew 6, 7. Neither is the mere offering of prayer acceptable unless it is offered in an acceptable and a contrite spirit. And what constitutes this acceptability of mind is abundantly revealed in the scriptures. And this parable that we have here is one of the revelations.
It is spoken, we are told, in the verse introducing it, concerning certain who trusted in themselves, that, that they were righteous and yet despised others. And it is concluded by the declaration on the part of Christ that everyone that exalted himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Now the language of the two men in the parables shows what is meant. The Pharisee who had a powerful backing of favorable human reputation was well pleased with his attainments. And the publican, whom the Pharisee as well as the Jews in general regarded in an odious light, realized his dependence on the divine clemency for permission even to live. And their prayers were tinged with these sentiments respectively. And in consequence, the one was acceptable while the other prayer was obnoxious. Why did the Pharisee think so well and the publican so ill of himself? We can get the clue in that other expression of Christ when Christ says, Thou blind Pharisee, a man whose eyes are open, a man who understands things as they are, has such a sense of the eternal power such a sense of the greatness and such a sense of the holiness of God. And the weakness and the sinfulness of sinful man, that his own attainments, however excellent, by comparison with bad men, must always appear as nothing in his eyes. His own righteousness must appear to him as filthy rags in the light of the purity and the power and in the correctness of the spirit nature. This is the estimate that the scriptures always put into the mouths of acceptable men. And it is the language of reason and not of inability, though this excuse has been largely made of it in the ecclesiastical age which we live. Now, in closing, brethren and sisters, I just want to take about two minutes, and I would like to appeal to those of us 
who who have not yet been baptized. Whether we are young or whether we are older, we have heard this week by Brother Ernie that we got to get out of Adam and to get into Christ. We have heard that baptism will guarantee us a resurrection. Well, baptism will give us lots more, brethren and sisters, than just a resurrection. Is not baptism a means of being adopted into the household of God? It'll give us that. It's a means of being born again, of putting off the old man Adam and putting on the new. So then we will be out of that Adamic nature. And then we will be in Christ. So I appeal to the young people to think on these things. It'll not just give you a resurrection at the return of Christ. It'll give you these other things. And besides these, you will become the seed of Abraham. That's another good point. You'll be in the Abrahamic family instead of a Gentile. You will be putting on the saving name. Because you'll be crucified with Christ. Baptism will bury you and raise you with Christ. You'll become a new creature in Christ. You will become clean through the word. You will be free from the law of sin and death. You will pass into the state wherein there is therefore now no condemnation. The way you are now, your outlook is death. The way you can be, your outlook is life. So is it not a passing from death into life? So all these things that I have mentioned, 
These are pluses. Not just a resurrection at the return of Christ. And so let let none of us fall short of realizing this position that these young people can come into and that we who have been baptized are into. Let us not realize or fall short of realizing this position that we are now all in. Thank you. Trade them time periods. And uh, I told him he could have both if he wanted, but he wouldn't. (laughs) Or any portion thereof, but he still wouldn't take it. I think maybe this morning we'll discuss the marriage feast, which is taken from Matthew 22, verses 1 to 14. Matthew links this parable with that of the householder and the short parable of the cornerstone. In plain language, Jesus had uttered the words, The kingdom of God shall be taken away from you, and it shall be given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof. And they perceived by these words, And this is told to us in Matthew, that he spake of them. They sought to lay hands on him there. And in so doing, they must, there must have been many whisperings amongst them. There must have been many quiet discussions among them with regards to this point. Although then no verbal question was put to Jesus yet, yet the circumstances called for an answer, and so Jesus answered, and he spake unto them in parables, And this fixes the application, I think, of the parable of the marriage feast, which we'll discuss this morning. And it shows how Jewish indifference to God's approaches would bring its punishment. While on the other hand, it shows the offer of God's grace. 
and how it would be transferred to, to others, namely to the Gentiles. This parable was spoken by Jesus. You know, I speak loud enough so that when I make a mistake, you can all hear it. (laughs) I found that out about Tuesday, wasn't it? (laughs) This parable, can you hear me at the back? This parable was spoken by Jesus soon after he had uttered, uttered the parable of the vineyard. And it was uttered to the same people, that is, it was uttered to the, uh, uttered to the chief priests as well as unto the Pharisees. Both of these groups perceived his parables were aimed at them. And the great fact of the situation was the hostile attitude of the priests, who ought to have been foremost in the recognition and exposition of the truth. Israel's leaders are men who have received an invitation which they despised, and who abuse and who ill-treat and even kill the messenger who conveyed it to them. The invitation is from the highest quarters. The invitation is from the court of the king. And it relates to the most interesting occasion that could possibly arise at that time. The marriage of the king's son. It scarcely requires saying that the king of, that the king is God and that the king's son is Christ, and that the marriage proposed for Christ is the consummation of his work. This, we know, will happen at his coming, which is expressly described in the last of the apostolic writings under the figure of a marriage. Revelation 19, 7 and 8 says, The marriage of the Lamb is come, and the wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. Now the union to Christ in glory of those who have been 
uh, prepared for him in previous generations of probation is fitly likened here in this parable as to a marriage. When the truth of man's mortality is seen and the death is recognized as a temporary victory over the Lord's people, this obscurity vanishes and the beauty of the parable then shines forth to us. The righteous are to be glorified together at the appearing of Christ. They will be presented at that time as a multitudinous bride to the Lord at his return. They will be an organized community of immortals developed by probation and installed by divine right in possession of the earth as well as all power therein. Isn't that a beautiful picture? And they will be under one head, the king's son. King of kings and lord of lords. We read in scriptures where it says that God sent forth his servants at sundry times and in diverse manners to invite men to this proposed wedding. And Christ's parable here that we are studying this morning illustrates how it was received in his day at the hands of Israel's leader or leaders and their followers and the consequences that came at their treatment of it. The bearers of the invitation were Christ and his apostles. And they delivered this invitation to many, only a few of whom appreciated it at its true level. So few that they are not represented in the first stage here in this parable. The common attitude was that which was represented. 
And we read in scriptures what they did. They made light of it. And they went their way. Each to his own particular hobby. And they did even worse than that, didn't they? They not only went towards whatever was interesting them or to their, to what their own particular hobby. They persecuted and they destroyed the Lord Jesus and his apostles. And the ultimate sequel was terrible. And it says that the king was wroth and he sent forth his armies and destroyed those murderers and he burnt up their city. And so let the awful particulars of the destruction of Jerusalem that has been furnished for us all to peruse in the writings of the historian Josephus. Let his writings then bear witness to the fulfillment of this quotation in this parable. Before things reached this terrible end, a minor but most important result sprang from Israel's rejection of the marriage invitation. And it is one that specially affects us as part of the Gentile community to whom the invitation has come. Paul gives expression to it in Romans 9.11 when he says, Through their fall, salvation is come unto the Gentiles. Then said he, the king, to his servants, The wedding is ready, but they which were bidden were not worthy. Go ye therefore into the highways, and as many as ye shall find, bid to the marriage. This part of the parable has its fulfillment in the works of the apostles as recorded for us in the book of Acts. And we know that Peter, as Christ had appointed, took the foremost part in this, as also in other matters. For in the 15th chapter, at the 7th verse, it is says that God made choice among us, that the Gentiles, by my mouth, this is Peter speaking, by my mouth should hear the words of the gospel 
and believe. Now the Apostle Paul gives expression to it in his own case in Acts 13.46. For there he says that it was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you. That was necessary, he says, to the Jews. It was necessary that the word of God should have been spoken to you. But seeing ye put it from you, and seeing that ye judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. And so thus the invitation that was originally addressed to Israel alone was extended to the occupants of the Gentile highway. And for nearly 20 centuries, brethren and sisters, it has been almost confined strictly to the Gentiles. And with the lapse of time and the prevalence of corruption, it has come to be very much misapprehended even by the Gentiles. They think it is a wholesale, they think it is cheap, and they think it is easy. The Gentiles have long ago, brethren and sisters, lost the idea of the way being narrow. And that the gate is straight. They, the Gentiles, have long forgotten that God did first, or that God at first did visit the Gentiles, not to convert the world by preaching. That was not his point. He told us what he wanted to do. But to rather to take out of them himself a people for his name. The Gentiles have settled into a great complacency with regards to their position. Have we? The Gentiles imagine they are all the Lord's people in total forgetfulness of the words of Christ. That it is not everyone that saith, Lord, Lord, but he that doeth the will of my Father, it is he that shall enter the kingdom. 
Well, in my opinion, there will be a wonderful disenchantment on this subject when Christ returns. And the parable teaches that we are studying this morning, the parable teaches there that, that he elsewhere plainly declared these words, for he spoke them. Many shall come to me in that day and shall say, Lord, Lord, have we not preached in thy name? And in thy name have we not done many wonderful things? But I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. We read also in the parable that servants went out into the highway and gathered together all, as many as they found, both bad and good. And we read that the wedding feast was furnished with guests. And so by this we see that the apostles did their work. The results will be seen in the immense multitude that shall be gathered in Christ's presence for judgment in the day of his appearing. And when the king came in to see his guests, he saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment. This man questioned on the subject, we are told, is speechless. He says absolutely nothing. He was speechless. And he was and ordered to be expelled into outer darkness where there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then Christ adds a comment and says, well, this comment supplies the sense in which he used the parable. For he said, many are called and few are chosen. The parable as instanting only one man rejected might seem to teach the reverse of this. That many are called and nearly all are chosen. But we must take the meaning as here interpreted by Christ 
and illustrated by his plainer teachings elsewhere, the call is to all who come within range of his invitation. Firstly, it was the Jews. Secondly, the Gentiles. But the choice is from those who respond to the call. On the principle, on the principle of preparedness, for what they are called to. And we read that the man not accepted was dismissed because he had not on a wedding garment. The meaning of the wedding garment is supplied by Revelation 19, where it says, to her, this speaking of the bride, to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. This is in harmony with every teaching of the word and every reasonable consideration in this case, that a man's acceptance of the gospel will not be counted for righteousness unless it brings forth compliance on his or her part with the will of Christ, as is expressed in the commandment. It is inevitable that during the incessant teaching activities of the three and a half years that Jesus should frequently repeat parables and precepts, not always in the same forms. Whence most easily arises the so-called discrepancy between three or four separate accounts which are really, brethren and sisters, in themselves, they are really absolutely consistent. Scriptures tell us that it was necessary that the word of God should have been spoken to the Jews first. And secondly, that the salvation of God is sent unto the Gentiles and that they will hear it. And the spirit of the bride says, Come, whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. And the highways and the hedges operation that we read of there in that parable, it continues to the very coming of the Lord. 
to the very last day. And it embraces those who are alive and remain unto the coming of our Lord. It acts upon the figuratively poor and the maimed. It acts upon the halt and the blind. And this explains why it is that the gospel is not received among the wise and is not received among the noble of the world. But it is confined to such as are of no standing or those who are of no account. Even as it was in the days of Jesus, the cultured and the well-to-do are too much preoccupied with their own self-comforting devices to have room for the ways of God. <clears throat> and it is the lowly classes Well, maybe the no, no, lowly classes are not much better off than the rich in this respect. But among the lonely classes here and there, and to be found such as are small in their own eyes, And for those few, who are prepared in an honest and glad heart to receive the kingdom of God as little children. This, brethren and sisters, is my interpretation of this particular parable. And now we have a few minutes left. So let us look at Matthew 21. Look at about eight verses there, beginning at the 33rd verse. And continuing on to the 41st. This is the parable of the vineyard. And you'll all recognize this parable. And we'll just deal with it shortly to end off our class. And it will back up what we have said here in the, in the earlier parable that we have discussed this morning on the marriage feast. Israel was especially formed for the purpose and for the pleasure of God. Do we ever think of it that way? Israel was especially formed for the purpose and for the pleasure of Almighty God. He says, this people have I formed for myself. 
than Isaiah. Isaiah 41.21, if you want to make a note of it. He says, this people I formed for myself. And Jeremiah 13 and 11 says, Tell us that they might be unto me for a name and for a praise and for a glory before all people on the earth. This is speaking of Israel. The planting of a vineyard is a frequent frequent figure of Israel's national corporation. It was not used for the first time when Jesus spoke this parable. So early as in David, we read these words. This is from Psalm 80, and 80 verse 8. Thou hast brought a vine out of Egypt. Thou hast cast out the heathen and thou hast planted it. Thou preparest room before it, and didst cause it to take deep root, and it filled the land. And again in Isaiah 4, 7 it says, Well, it is a theme of a theme of a song, for it says, "Now will I sing to my beloved a song of my well beloved touching his vineyard. My beloved hath a vineyard in a very fruitful hill, and he fenced it and gathered out the stones thereof." And he planted it with the choicest vine, the vineyard of the Lord of hosts. Is the house of Israel. And for God's pleasure and well-being of men, composing it, this national vineyard existed. Had it answered its end, nothing but the purest prosperity would have attended it. God was waiting over them to do them good. And Moses, in his writings, speaks very plainly to them when he said, and this was in Deuteronomy 7, verses 12, 14. And he said these words, these are the words of Moses, that it shall come to pass that if ye hearken to the judgments, and if ye keep them, and if ye do them, that the Lord thy God will love thee, and he will bless thee, and he will multiply thee, 
and he will also bless the fruit of the womb and the fruit of thy land. He will bless thy corn and thy wine and thine oil. The increase of thy kind and the flocks of thy sheep. In the land which he swear unto thy fathers to give thee. And he further goes on and says that thou shalt be blessed above all people. And that there shall not be male or female barren among you and thy cattle. And then he asks the question, What doth the Lord thy God require of thee but to fear the Lord thy God? To walk in all his ways and to love him and to serve the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul. Doesn't that paint a beautiful picture? Now, having planted the vineyard, the proprietor sent messengers to receive of the fruit thereof in this parable. He planted the vineyard and then sent those to receive the product of that vineyard. And that is, God raised up prophets in the midst of Israel to bring them to the obedience of which he required and to that service and that praise in which he delighted. With what result everyone acquainted with Israel's history knows. Brethren and sisters, there is absolutely no sadder chapter in the whole of human confusion upon earth than this. Just to think that a nation that has been divinely founded, a nation that was divinely constituted, 
that was divinely guided. should in all their generations have turned against, should have killed the messengers that were divinely sent to them to keep them in the right way. It is a fact which painfully appears, painfully appears, in the details of Israel's history and is thus concisely and most graphically summarized at the close of the divine record. The chief of the priests and the people transgressed very, very much after all of the abominations of the heathen and they polluted the house and the Lord the host that he himself had hallowed in Jerusalem. I'm reading from Second Chronicles, by the way, if you want it. Chapter 34. And the Lord God of their fathers sent to them by his messengers, rising up many times and sending, because compassion on the people of his dwelling place. But they mocked the messengers of God. They despised his words as well as misused his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people till there was no remedy. This is the fact the state of things parabolically exhibited in this story of the vineyard. And brethren and sisters, this is still going on today. Israel's long career in insubordination culminated in the rejection of the crucifixion of the Son of God himself. Judgment was not long delayed after this. The account of public events during A.D. 30 to, uh, 30 to 70, which is a vulgar area in all the world's history, recorded for us in the writings as I spoke of earlier in the other parable of Josephus, is the historic illustration of the process of the miserable destruction which in the fulfillment of the words of Jesus slowly came upon them as the result of their disobedience. And so the vineyard by that process was taken from the order of husbandmen then in possession. And of that vineyard, Jesus is here exhibited as the heir, and he has not since that time come into possession, but he will do it shortly as the heir. And he indicates such 
an event in sanctioning the sanctioning the statement that it will be given unto others. And the gospel of the kingdom enables us to realize and to recognize who those others are. The Lord Jesus and his brethren in the day of his glory at his return as he says in Matthew 25 and 31 and with this quote I will close when the son of man shall come in his glory and all the holy angels with him then shall he sit on the throne of glory. Brethren, I've come to the end of my lessons. Erding has come to the end of his. <laughs> Enough said. <laughs> It's been a privilege to be with you this week. I have enjoyed these classes, and I hope you have. I hope that we have all gained, you know, uh, a little bit of knowledge. And so, uh, we might ask that we might be dismissed with the blessings of God, that our hearts might be filled with joy and peace, and that we each might run the waste, grace. successfully until he come. And so unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to the only wise God our Savior, be glory and majesty and dominion in, in power, both now and forever. Amen.